Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Glad to have a crowd on Labor Day weekend. Esprit de corps. How many of you have heard that term and know what it means? Esprit de corps. That's all the hands I'm seeing? I thought we had a bunch of veterans in here. All the veterans are going, I'm not raising my hand. Of course, I know what esprit de corps means. It's a phrase you heard a lot in the military. It means, well, there's a lot of definitions for it. One definition is morale, the morale of the military. Are you up? Are you fired up? Are you, are you going to believe in your cause and in your service? And we would believe in the different services. I was in the Air Force, and, of course, the Air Force was, Air Force was the better of all the services. <clears throat> which is exactly what you would hear if you talk to a guy who was in the Army or the National Guard or, or the Coast Guard or the Navy, whatever branch you were in, that was the best branch. That's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to believe in what you are doing. You're supposed to believe in who you are. And we would have these friendly rivalries with one another. You see it on the football field between Army, the Army-Navy game, big rivalry. But we go to war, what happens? The esprit de corps goes from being esprit de corps of the army or the esprit de corps of the navy, the esprit de corps, the morale, the, the fired up fighting spirit of America because we are Americans. It's French. What's a literal translation in French of esprit de corps? Some of you French speakers? Spirit of the body. Spirit of the body. By the way, what are we? If we are in Christ, we are the body of Christ. We're talking about the spirit of the body this morning. What a wonderful concept, esprit de corps. It's a spirit that brings high morale because you have a reverence in Christ for the purpose of who we are. This is part of our identity. And so we're talking about this idea this morning the esprit de corps. I'll read you the definition that I got off of Wikipedia because, you know, Wikipedia now has replaced Webster's Dictionary for definitions. That's just kind of the way it works. Esprit de corps, also known as morale, is the capacity of a group's members to maintain belief in an institution or goal, particularly in the face of opposition or hardship. And it's opposition sometimes that brings the esprit de corps to the front. And we have that in this nation, but we especially have it in the church. And one of the reasons I say we have it as a nation, because we we sort of naturally have this idea, this identity as Americans, and we're proud of that. It, It kind of played out in a wonderful way in World War II because all of the services worked together. And one of the reasons I believe we were able to defeat the Japanese is because the Japanese Army and the Japanese Navy had a rivalry. They did not like each other, and so the Navy was loath to bring supplies to the Army. Well, guess what happened to the Army? Well, you know what happened to the Army. We're speaking English today rather than Japanese or German, so esprit de corps pays off. We're reading from the book of Ephesians. This is a letter Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. If you want to read about its establishment, go back to the 19th chapter of Acts where he just finds 12 guys. And he preaches the gospel to those 12 guys, baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church is established in Ephesus. But Ephesus was a hard town. What also do you read about in the 19th chapter of Acts? What happened in the theater at Ephesus? 
Because the preaching of the gospel, get this, the preaching of the gospel so threatened faith in their goddess Diana that for two hours they gathered in that theater and they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I don't know if they said it just like that. I imagine it was in Greek. But that's what they cried out for two hours. It doesn't matter what you're crying out for two hours. After the first 30 minutes, it kind of all blends together, I imagine. But that's what they did for two hours. And this was no tiny little theater. They've unearthed a theater. They believe it's the theater of Ephesus. And it would hold, they estimate, about 24,000 people. So just imagine that theater filled up with the town. And the text indicates that it was full. And for two hours, they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Ephesus is the place where Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he fought with beasts. He didn't fight with beasts. He didn't reference that idea for any other town except Ephesus. Fought with beasts at Ephesus. And then you read this letter. And I I find it fascinating that we made reference to this in class. Shannon was talking to us about prayer. But but in talking to us about prayer, we go to the 6th chapter of Ephesians. What do you talk about in the 6th chapter of Ephesians? But Paul's admonition to put on the full armor of God. Why in the world would he write to the saints in Ephesus and say you need to put on the full armor of God? He wrote that because they were in a fight. And we're still in a fight, are we not? We're still in a fight. Now, Gabe read for us a section that I gave him out of chapter 3, but I want us to back up in chapter 2, starting at verse 19. And this will be the first part of our lesson. We're going to have a three-part lesson this morning. We're going to talk about God's dwelling place, And we're going to talk about God's mystery being revealed. And we're going to talk about God's wisdom being made plain to the world. So those are the three things we'll talk about this morning from Ephesians 2 and 3. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Am I still amplified? All right, got it. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built according together, built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. In the Spirit. God's Spirit is living in you if you are in Christ. And we are living in Christ. Now think about Ephesus. What was the focal point of the town but the great temple of Diana? How many wonders were there of the ancient world? There were seven. This was one of them. This temple built to the goddess Diana was one of the seven ancient wonders of that time. And Paul's in this town talking to the church. And I don't know, you might get the idea, well, we're, we're just the church, quote unquote, just the church. And you look up at that marvelous temple, wondrous temple, where all the wealth of the city is, is bound up. And so many craftsmen are, are getting their living, making images of Diana. And there's, all, there, there's a whole economy built around this goddess Diana. And the gospel comes in and threatens it. And Paul says to the church, God's living in you. There is no goddess living in that temple up there on the hill, but God is living in you. You are the dwelling place of God. 
When I was a kid, and I found out that company was coming, I vacated the house. I grabbed my rifle, I grabbed my fishing rod, I grabbed my dog, whatever I could, and I got out of there. You know why? Because if company was coming, that house had to be right. And mom got busy. And I was always in the way when mom got busy cleaning the house. I don't know why she cleaned the house. It was never dirty. There wasn't a speck of dust anywhere. She was one of those housekeepers. So I got out of there. Because it was all about making that house right and ready for company. And God is saying to you and me through this letter, you are where I want to live. I want to be living in you. And that's exactly what he does through Jesus Christ. He puts his spirit in us when we obey the gospel. And God lives in us through his spirit. We are his dwelling place. Do you want to live just anywhere? God doesn't want to live just anywhere. He wants to live in you. He doesn't live in a temple made with hands. No matter how wondrous we might Refer to that structure in humanly terms and worldly terms. God says, I want to live in you. And that's what Paul is writing about. Now, how is it that the the apostles and Jesus are the foundation? Well, that's because of their words. The only reason you can be part of God's dwelling is through the word of Jesus Christ and his apostles. Jesus said, John chapter 17... Preaching, or not preaching, praying to his father. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. We have been set apart as a dwelling place for God by the word of God himself. And that's who we are today. When you think of the church, you talk to the church or talk about the church to a lot of people, they think of the building. What is this building Sheep shed. Somebody taught us years ago. Steve and Bud taught us. And if you don't remember Steve and Bud, ask some of the older ones of us about Steve and Bud. They came and we, we had about a week or a month's worth of studies. I forget how long it was, but we talked about the building being a sheep shed. The real church, the real dwelling of God, the real house of God is you. He lives in you. And that's what this text is telling us that we are his house. Now, when you think about what God calls his church in the scriptures, here are some of the titles, some of the ways he describes his church. His children. You are God's children. We are his son's bride. And guys, if you love your wife the way you should love your your wife, how important to you is your bride? And how important is it to you that she be honored and respected by everyone? We are referred to as his son's body. The body that he allowed to hang on the cross was given for our sins. And now he is calling us his body. He is our head and we are him. We are made over in his image. Paul would write to the church at Corinth in the second letter, chapter 5. So we are made over into the image of Christ and we are his body. Isaiah called it the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's a powerful image, isn't it? Mountain of the house of the Lord. That's who we are. We are God's kingdom on earth. We are the church. But what does the church mean? What's, what's the Greek word from which that comes? The Greek word, everybody knows the Greek word, right? It's ekklesia. What the word ekklesia means is called out assembly. You heard the gospel. 
And you said, that's for me. I believe in Jesus. I need salvation for my sin. You heard that gospel. It called to your heart, to your mind, and you obeyed that gospel. And so now you have been added to the assembly. What's what happened in the second chapter of Acts? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And if you've been saved through Jesus Christ, you have been called out through that gospel and added to the assembly. We are where God lives today. You. As an individual, and we as a body, are God's dwelling place. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read... You can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, I want to stop there just for a minute and make a quick parenthetical statement about that because he says something profound. What does he say in verse 4? He says, when you read what I wrote, you can do what? You can understand. The apostle doesn't say, what I wrote down is spiritual and you can't figure it out. It's mystic. It's mystical. And you'll never know what it means. He says, no, God gave me the revelation. I wrote it down. You read it. You can understand it. Isn't that fantastic? Einstein, one of the greatest minds humanity has known, especially in our age. Einstein said the most, how how did he put it? I should have written it down. But he said the most remarkable thing or most, uh, yeah, about the universe is that you can understand it. If this universe came into being by an accident... How could there be understanding? How could there be a mind in us that can understand? And Paul writes to the church, when when you read what I wrote, you can understand it. Well, let's keep on going here. I'm closing the parentheses on that. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific about this mystery... That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. What's the mystery? The mystery is that the Gentiles are included. You know what that means? You and me, we are included in God's plan. Isn't that fantastic? Because you would, you would read these things prior and you would, oh, that's, it's all for the Jews. It's all the children of Abraham. They're the chosen people. They're the ones. And then Paul says, well, wait, 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 wait. There was a mystery. It's been hidden in ages past. But now it's been revealed. God's salvation is for everybody. Everybody. It doesn't matter. When Paul wrote to, to the church at Rome, chapter 1 in verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Can you tell me? It's the power of God for salvation to whom? To everybody who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Also, I like to say, to the Okies. They're coming, boys, he could have wrote. <laughs> you watch out for them, they're coming. Good people. And God wants them saved. God wants you saved. Doesn't matter if you're an, an Okie or if you're from Texas. Got some folks here from Texas this morning. Amen. And I'm not even talking about my grandchildren back there. They're from Texas too now. They're from Fort Worth. So, 
hey, the, the gospel's for everybody. I, I want to show you a picture. Uh, Charles, you got that picture? I want you to pull this picture up. Talking about the gospel being for everyone, and that's you, and you are in on the ground floor of salvation, the ground floor of the church, and there's nothing in the universe more important to God than his church. His son bought that church with his blood. There's nothing in the universe more important than that, and I would venture to say nothing in the heavenlies more important than the church to God. But who in the world are these people? Raise your hand if you know who they are. Nobody's raising her. Charles is raising his hand. He's working the computer. He knows who they are. Do you notice any, any one person in particular in that photo? Charles? Who's that guy? His initials are B.G., Anybody? Try Bill Gates. Go back to the, to the picture, the whole shot. Who are those guys? Now, I'm, I'm not speaking judgmentally. I'm just saying first impressions. What a bunch of geeks. <laughs> what a bunch of strange-looking characters. You know who those people are now, don't you, in connection with Bill Gates? That's the original staff of Microsoft. This is a picture from 1978. 1978. This is they, when they got their start. In 1987, by that time, stock in Microsoft had risen to a whopping 23 cents a share. Ooh, go ooh. You know what a share in Microsoft cost you today that 23 cent share has now gone up to 328 dollars now why am i showing you this why am i talking about this in worldly terms you just don't get much better than this financially what if you could have been there and and you ran into bill at mcdonald's and said hey i heard you're starting up a little company i i don't think it's ever going to fly but I'm going to give this guy some money because I like to encourage people. And so here, here's $100. Here's $100. I'll take, let's say by that time, 23 cents a share. How many? Well, you, you get a bunch of shares for, for $100. That's a lot of money to invest in 1978. What would it be today? <sighs> Talking about $38,000. Wow. That's a big job. How would you like to have gotten in on the ground floor of Microsoft? How would you like to have been one of their original investors? Where would you be today, financially speaking? I want to tell you something. Microsoft is nothing compared to the kingdom of God. Nothing against Microsoft. I use it every day. I value their products. I'm, I'm glad for these people and those. If you could see the brains in those people... We would be blown away by the smarts. But the kingdom of God, it's what you're part of. There's no comparison. This, is, this would be, in comparison, a little fly-by-night thing. But you're part of the kingdom of God. What does that do for your, your sense of being, your sense of who you are, your sense of identity? To know that God lives in you. 
And he doesn't just live in you, but you are part of the most important institution, if you will, that has ever existed. That's who you are. Oh, I'm I'm just a member of the church. No. No, you're not just a member of the church. You're the apple of God's eye. Next part of this text starts in verse 8. Paul writes to me, the very least of all saints, this grace has been given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Through Jesus Christ, you and I have boldness. Well, what's that boldness in relation to? Well, it's in relation to approaching God. How could you approach God on your own? I like the song that says, calls us wretches. They've changed that word recently. I guess the word wretch is not nice enough to use in a a Christian hymn. But I like the word wretch. That's how Paul spoke of himself in Romans chapter 7. And that's how we understand we are before God. However, he's chosen us wretches to be his children. He's called us out through his gospel. He has assembled us together to be the body of his son. We are his kingdom. He reigns over us and through us and in us. And we are the means by which the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. But not just the world. Where else is the manifold wisdom of God being made known by the church? In the heavenly places. I don't have a clue what that means. But I know that there are beings who are far and above this world and they look at us the lord's church and they see in us the manifold wisdom of god and i'm not exactly sure how that's supposed to be understood because there's two ways to take it and really i think it works both ways they'll look at the church and they'll see god's plan to save people through his son jesus christ oh yeah that's that's the manifold wisdom of god you can see all the wisdom in how he brought this plan to fruition and save these people. That's a wonderful thing. They can look at the church and see that salvation and go, that's, that's God's wisdom for those people right there. But they could also look at the impact the gospel has on you and me. And they could say of your life and my life, look at how that individual has changed. Look at what they used to be, but look at what they are now. God is so wise In so many ways to bring about a plan that would not just simply save people, but would make them better people. Make them people in whom the Spirit of God lives and through whom the Spirit of God brings about fruit. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, brotherly kindness. No matter how much we had of those things before, we have more of it now. And I'm telling you, that's just a a short list. You think about it, you'll come up with more things that are the fruit of God's Spirit. The influence of God's Spirit in your life will bring about more wonderful things than those nine that are listed there. And I'm not knocking the list. I'm just saying that, that list is just an example. There's a whole lot more, I think, that the Holy Spirit produces. 
But that's what God is doing through us and in us. And not just the world looks at that and is amazed. But beings in heavenly places look at that and are amazed. There's a text in 1 Peter chapter 1 if you want to go there and read with me. This is what Peter wrote about the gospel. Because what Paul said in Ephesians 3 is that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known by the church. That's us. We are making known the manifold wisdom of God. And so Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. The prophets, the prophets who prophesied did what? They made careful searches. They made inquiries seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories, the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's the power and the potency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the church. That's you. You. The power of God is revealed in saving you and making you into someone who is the image of Christ in this sinful place. That's you. Not only did the prophets make careful inquiries and searches, but the angels wanted to look into this. And you and I, it's just given to us. Isn't that fantastic? Here we sit today. Never think of yourself, oh, I'm, I'm just a Christian. I'm just going to church. No, you're part of the most important institution that's ever been created with the greatest price that's ever been paid. I want to read to you something as we close. This is from the second century. You know the church was established in the first century. And I, if you remember from the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, in the first part, the first chapter of that letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi, he said, I'm a prisoner for the gospel of Christ, but the, being a prisoner has turned out for the good because the whole Praetorian guard has heard the gospel through me. Now you read that and you think, okay, the Praetorian guards heard it. Was anybody converted? Anybody become a Christian from the Praetorian guard? This is from the year 174. So about 140 years or so after this church was established, this let me just read this for you. Lest any believe that the Roman army was not filled with Christian men, the following is an account written by Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius of a time in 174 when he was stranded in Germany without his legions and surrounded by German fighters. Now those weren't Messerschmitts and Focke-Wulfs like World War II, but just German soldiers of that day. So Marcus Aurelius is writing this about what happened in 174 when they were fighting the Germans in Europe. But being disregarded by them, and there's a quote, his pagan gods to whom he had prayed, I summoned those who among us go by the name of Christians. And having made inquiry in his army, I discovered a great number and vast host of Christians, and I raged against them, 
which was by no means becoming, for afterwards I learned their power. Now what is he saying? He's saying, I was praying to my gods and nothing was happening. And so I thought, you know what? We got a bunch of these stinking Christians and I bet my gods aren't answering my prayers because these stinking Christians are here. So he brought the Christian soldiers, Roman soldiers that were Christians, and he berated them for believing in Jesus. Wherefore, they began the battle... Not by preparing weapons, nor arms, nor bugles, for such preparation is hateful to them. On account of the God they bear about in their conscience, therefore it is probable that those whom we suppose to be atheists... What what are you, atheists? Yes, Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So they were against their gods, that means they're atheists. Isn't that an irony? So these who we suppose to be atheists have God as their ruling power entrenched in their conscience. Esprit de corps? Yeah, there it is. For having cast themselves on the ground, they prayed not only for me, but also for the whole army as it stood, that they might be delivered from the present thirst and famine. For during five days we had got no water because there was none. For we were in the heart of Germany and in the enemy's territory. And simultaneously with their casting themselves on the ground and praying to God, a God of whom I am ignorant, water poured from heaven upon us refreshingly cool, but upon the enemies of Rome a withering hail. And immediately we recognized the presence of God following on the prayer, a God unconquerable and indestructible. That's from the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Christians in the Roman army. What a story. People who made the manifold wisdom of God apparent to this Roman emperor. And that's what you and I are doing today. We are living out Christ in our life. He dwells in us. We are the revelation of the mystery that salvation is for everyone. And we have embraced that salvation. And now we live our lives. And as we do, we show forth the manifold wisdom of God. Thank God for what a plan is this. That he includes us and makes us his home. We're going to conclude this lesson now with an invitation as we traditionally do. Because you might not be part of this dwelling place of God. If you're outside of Christ, if you've never obeyed the gospel, you've never uh, confessed Christ and put him on in baptism, you are outside the kingdom of God. And we want you to come in. God wants you to come in. He said in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open to me, I will come in and we will sit down and have supper together. That's there. Revelation chapter 3, you read it. What a beautiful picture. If you will only open the door to Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing the invitation song this morning.